Hello, and welcome to Café Olé. I'm your co-host, Shade Jean-Jacques. And I'm your other co-host, Kaina Mondezir. Café Olé is a series of conversations focused on decolonizing wellness and reclaiming our stories through elevating the experiences and voices of women of color, specifically Black women. We will discuss topics such as gender roles, spirituality, sexual identity, and race as it intersects with healing and wellness. We want to create space for women to connect with each other through experiences and vulnerability. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram at Cafe Olé Podcast. Let's dive deep. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Cafe Olé. I'm your co-host, Shade. Hello, happy Haitian Flag Day. This is Kaina. What's up, guys? Happy Haitian Flag Day. How are you doing? <laughs> um, I'm feeling extra Haitian today. Might just swim in some sauce poil later. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. How are you feeling today? I feel good. I feel good. It was a beautiful weekend. I enjoyed the sun. Zora and I kicked it. We made another apple pie. Actually, it was an apple pear and peach pie, although Ooh. we only had three little peaches. So it's pretty much an apple and pear pie. Either way, it's delicious. Oh, God. Now I want some peach cobbler. Uh, yeah. Oh, God. I love a good cobbler. <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally drooling right now. <laughs> it's been a while since I had a good peach cobbler. Yeah. Huh. You know what? We're going to have to make it when, whenever this quarantine is over. Truly. And you know what I was thinking about earlier? And then we can actually get to the topic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to make um, either a spinach and mushroom or a kale and mushroom quiche yo you know? you know i'm all for that you know and i'm gonna try to make it be well i don't know I'm definitely <laughs> not the crust I- i'm not making the crust by scratch like i'm not there yet as a human being um so the filling can be vegan but the crust won't be so you mean you won't be using any eggs um Okay, I need to think this through, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, I'm leaving out cheese is what I should have just said. Okay. Well, yo, this is like Thanksgiving or the day after Thanksgiving dinner all over again when you were trying to make, what was it? But you were asking for mayo? Salad wuss. Yes. <laughs> God, seriously. Sometimes I'm like, do I even have a brain? Like, what is in my skull? I don't, I'm like, I... I'd be bobbleheading all over the place. Like, is there actually anything in there? <laughs> it happens. It'd be like that sometimes. All right, guys. This is what you have to deal with with us. So welcome to our lives. <laughs> and you're topic, welcome. Yes. <laughs> today's topic is about our experience as first-generation Haitian Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, being raised by Haitian immigrants in America was like living in two separate worlds at once. And it took a while for me personally to be able to navigate through them both. I hear you. I hear you. And same here. And I I think with this, and, you know, of course, we'll talk about it more. A lot of being Haitian American, at least for me, involved living in the middle and not really knowing where I should sort of go um, in terms of how I identify and then eventually realizing that, you know, it's not really a should, but more so of a personal choice. So yeah. I'm excited that we're talking about this because we've talked about this so often, mm-hmm. you know, in the context of our lives. And then for me, even more so thinking about Zora and how she identifies right. or will identify or how I identify her, I guess. Um, and it's timely because it's Haitian Flag Day. So here we are. Mm-hmm. Yes. So what was it like growing up for you as Haitian American Well, when I was living in Boston, it was very easy. Uh, Obviously, there's a very large Haitian community there. So all of my friends were Haitian and essentially living the same lives. (laughs) Uh, We never had to explain to one another why we couldn't just like up and hang out after school. And we just already knew what it was. But when I moved to New Hampshire at the end of fifth grade, that's when I started to feel different, you know? Um, Mm. Not only was I one of very few Black people in my school, 
I was the only Haitian person. And I didn't meet, so I moved uh, to Nashua in fifth grade and I didn't meet another Haitian person till seventh or eighth grade. Uh, shout out to Randy Leroy, my best friend. We're still besties. But <laughs> we were so shocked because we always tell this story. We were in science class and I don't remember what I said. I was sitting behind him and he just turned around. He goes, yo, you Haitian? And I was like, uh, yeah, are you? He's like, yeah, I am. And we've been best friends ever since because I was like, I've, I found a fucking Haitian in Nashville, New Hampshire. This is amazing, you know? <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, I mean, and that's amazing that you were able to connect with him. But I can't imagine... Actually, yes, I can, because that was my experience. Not really. <laughs> I was going to say, I can't imagine not having someone who you can, you, who you feel like you culturally, you know, relate to. Um, but for me, I, I resonate with a lot of what you said, because, I mean, I didn't grow up. Didn't grow, so I moved around a lot when I was mm-hmm. younger. Um, and when I was living in the Boston area, so like Malden, Revere, Somerville, uh, I was certainly, you know, connected to more Haitian people. I had Haitian friends. They were living in my building. And then we moved um, further out to Salem, which had more Dominicans than anything. Um, but I just remember just throughout the course of my experience in schools, regardless of where I was living, um, coming up with this feeling of isolation because I was one of few Haitians or, you know, sort of being confronted with what other people believed to um, believed about Haitian peoples and um Jesse peoples, Haitian people, (laughs) um, and Haitian identity. Okay. Um, So what shaped or informed your understanding of your Haitian identity? I think a lot of it was about my upbringing and how my parents, especially my father, was very intentional about making sure that my brothers and I understood Haitian history, that we knew uh, about where we came from. Um, So I feel like a lot of my understanding of my Haitian identity was rooted in the home. And I think some of that was challenged when I would go to school. Um, I remember being in school and one of my teachers, my white teacher, well, actually I had all white teachers up until what, high school or something. But one of my teachers in class was talking about what it was like to live in Haiti and how, you know, these people have no plumbing and, you know, everyone in the neighborhood shares one toilet. And it was all these really like negative things. And I was the only Haitian person in my class. And as he was talking, I remember everyone just looked back at me. And it was a similar experience to when, you know, you're in history class, right? And you start talking, people start talking about enslavement and you're the only black person in class. Everybody looks at you, you know. Everybody Um, breaking their neck. Seriously, it's like, okay, like. I'm not a slave, bro. Stop fucking looking at me, Billy. Where you get chopped in the neck. (laughs) But it was just so like, it was, it felt isolating Mm -hmm. and I was already a shy girl. So that didn't help me, you know, in terms of participation in the classroom or anything. But again, every day when I went home, I was, I I had something strong um, to be connected with in terms of learning more about my Haitian culture outside of what misinformation was being shared in the classroom and other spaces. Yeah. And you know what, whenever you tell me about like how hard your parents went in making sure you guys knew uh, Haiti's history, I always Mm -hmm. envy that because obviously I knew like the bare minimum for my parents, but more so I got the culture through like their stories, their childhood Mm -hmm. stories. And I could just, I can just envision the neighborhood. And my mom said that when she wanted a snack, she would go outside to the front yard and pick a mango off the tree. You know what I mean? Stuff like that. Like yeah. your friends, they'd go to the waterfall and play in the waterfall all day, like stuff like that and music and art. But as far as like actual Haitian history, other than like the revolution, I didn't really know much. Um, my parents felt that it was very important to improve their English, obviously, to uh, be able to get better jobs. So they stopped speaking Creole at home. They would speak it to each other mostly, but not mm-hmm. really to my siblings and I. And that's why my Creole is my look. Y'all, don't judge me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I didn't truly dive into my Haitian identity until my freshman year of college. Uh, mm-hmm. I went to UHart, and for the first time since fifth grade, I was 
completely surrounded by Caribbean and African people. And it was, I don't want to say it was a culture shock, but honestly, coming from New Hampshire, it was a culture shock. I'm like, I haven't been around this many Black people outside of a family gathering in I don't know how long. Um, but just being around all these people day in and day out really helped shape my identity. I feel you. And that culture shock is real. And so as as I'm listening to you also, I'm wondering, because so, before I ask this question, so I was talking with a friend, Don, you know, obviously, and, you know, I was telling him about this episode and I was like, yeah, you know, this episode is going to be titled American-ish. And he was like, okay, but why not Haitian-ish? And I was like, because we're not Haitian-ish, we're American-ish. Mm-hmm. And he was like, hmm. And he really pushed back on that. And I'm wondering for you, do you feel that you are more Haitian than American or what does it even mean to be American to you? Um, (laughs) this is such a loaded question. Well, let me just say that even when I didn't feel the most Haitian always, I was always more Haitian than I was American because at the end of the day, my parents would let me know, you're not about to be out here with your American friends doing what your American friends are doing. God, you are ice, yeah? We will have none of that. So mm-hmm. um, I've always I've always felt more Haitian. And now that I've actually learned and dived into the culture, I feel even more Haitian. Like, I'm just bleeding red and blue at all times. Um, what does it mean to be American? Oh. I don't, how do you even answer that question? That's a good question. I, I, I feel like this is something that I, I think, you know, if we have this conversation with other folks of color, they will certainly, you know, resonate with this piece. But for me, whenever I would go into a space and people ask me, like, what are you? The inherent assumption was that I couldn't possibly be American because I'm not white. So I think oftentimes the assumption is that is is that to be American means to be white and it doesn't necessarily allow room for people who are not white and do identify um, as American to really take up space in that way because they're confronted against so many of these things. So for me, for a long, long time, and I would even say present day, I struggle with identifying as an American, even though I understand that I am based on my nationality. Mm-hmm. I, I think for me, part of the reason why I struggle with it is, you know, the, the history of this country. And also because I feel like my ethnic and cultural um, connection is stronger than my national origin. Right. Um, and I and I also in saying that recognize that as a privilege to be able to say that because I know for a lot of other Haitian born Haitian people, they may listen to this conversation or perceive us as Haitian Americans, um, you know, having so much more opportunity and all of these things. And I think one doesn't invalidate the other. All, all of it is valid, really. Um, but yeah, for me, it's just always been really, really complex. And I think part of it is connected to that that piece of living in the middle and not really knowing where do I fit. But still, at the end of the day, knowing that all of my values and beliefs and how I navigated was connected to how I was being raised at home, which was very much so steeped in Haitian culture. Right. So I think, you know, in, in, in talking about like how we were raised um, and you mentioned, you know, your parents were already like letting you know that you're not going to be out here doing everything your American friends are doing. I remember my parents saying, mostly my father saying that, but he was explicit. He's like, listen, I'm not one of your white friends, parents, like you are not doing this and that and sleepovers were not a thing. And it, it was very clear that we were Haitian. And for me, that distinction didn't only show up in the in the context of white and Haitian. It also showed up in the context of Haitian and Black. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering for you, like, how do you think anti-Blackness showed up in your upbringing? Well, I feel like, um, I mean, I won't generalize and say all Caribbean people, although it seems to be the same consensus throughout all the Caribbean countries, that when um, Caribbean or African people come to America, they do feel a slight disconnect with the Black American culture. And basically they're just like, I mean, there's a slight difference between being white American and Black American. 
um, but they felt like there was more of a difference than being Black American and Haitian or Jamaican or Trini. Hmm. Yeah, I think that I, I, I hear that from folks who I've spoken with um, that talk about that disconnect, but oftentimes it, it didn't necessarily reflect as simply a disconnect. It oftentimes sounded like a superiority, right? So mm-hmm. talking with other folks from across the diaspora who are um, non-Black American Black people saying very negative things about Black Americans that reflected anti-Blackness. Mm-hmm. And I think that shows up in in a, in a few ways. Um, and I remember really getting messages about how Haitian people, um, I don't want to say are better, but, you know, in thinking about history, right, obviously Haiti's the first independent Black republic. And that was like always a source of pride growing up, right? And it still is, right? But when I learned about it, it was framed in a way that made it seem like we were better than because we did this. And look, you know, there are still Black people enslaved in the United States and they were enslaved for so long. And it's because, you know what I mean? And that narrative turning into something that reflects poorly on Black Americans. And it really wasn't until I got older, you know, I would say like end of high school, going into undergrad grad that I realized that I had a lot of unlearning to do um, and realizing that that internalized blackness showed up in me in so many different ways that was connected to white supremacy and the messages that we receive as black people from white supremacy and also the messages I received um, you know in in learning more about my Haitian culture and identity and I don't necessarily think that that bias that Haitian people hold that other um, non-Black Americans, Black people hold, it, it is connected. It's also connected to white supremacy. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Uh, how were you confronted with anti-Haitianism growing up? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is connected to like the, the just things that people would share, you know, and a lot of the things that I I came up against happened in schools and they happened in ways that were unchecked. They happened in ways that allowed for students and educators to participate in this harmful rhetoric that ultimately ended up impacting my view of myself, my educational experience. And I know that now looking back, but at the time it just like, I could feel myself withdrawing from the environment more and more um, and felt more connected when I would go home and play with people from around the block. Um, so I, I think even now there's a lot of it that comes up in the stereotypes that people hold about Haitian people, um, you know, stereotypes that are created based on, you know, our current economic and political state, you know, things that are connected to things that aren't actually true. Um, so the the things that I remember the most are, are certainly the ones that happened in the classroom and how people talked about Haiti or even, like I mentioned earlier, getting to that segment of the history book and talking about enslavement. You know, talking about Haiti was like two sentences and, you know, we glossed over it as if it were nothing. Um, and at the time, I didn't really say anything about it because I knew that I was getting this education elsewhere, but it it did have a big impact. Yeah. What are ways that you feel like you were confronted with anti-Haitianism? Well, obviously, I'm sure you got this plenty of times. Oh, you're Haitian? You're so pretty for a Haitian. Oh, my God. Like, what does that even mean? Because literally all the Haitian people I know look better than you could ever. So (laughs) what does that even mean? Uh, There was one time someone, I told someone I was Haitian, and they were like, but you don't have bones in your hair. And I didn't even, that was the first time I ever, I ever even heard that stereotype. I was (laughs) literally still speechless (laughs) 20 years later. (laughs) Cause I was like, wait, what? What?" I've never ever heard that ever in my life. Right. I'm like, are we cavemen? I was very confused. I'm like, I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to walk away. Cause you clearly are fucking But one of, (laughs) I want to say one of the most impactful, um, like, anti-Haitianism that I experienced was when 
my mom and all my aunts made me and all my other cousins, uh, female cousins, promise to never marry a Haitian man. Oh, they literally made us promise to never marry a Haitian man. <laughs> Let's unpack that, please. You know? Why? And I was with it up until like five years ago, honestly. I'm going to be real. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Um, That's Yeah. So let's unpack. Please. I'm sure it has something to do with the multiple families, you know? <laughs> Even though... <laughs> Listen, to be fair, when you look across cultures, it seems, I don't, okay, let me, I don't want to sound like no bit of bitch right now. So let me just say, it seems like men having multiple families is not just in, within the black culture. You know what I mean? Like, I know, like some of my Italian friends are like, oh yeah, my, whatever they call their grandpa, they, they all have multiple families. So it's not just Haitians. And when I'm finally realize that as an adult woman <laughs> that probably any man you're gonna find is gonna have another family I was like damn so all this time I really could have been dating Haitian so now I do <laughs> that's wild I mean and I've, I've heard that stereotype before even you know talking with some of my girls like through undergrad and stuff you know there were some that are like okay yes I want to date Haitian men but when others were talking about not dating Haitian men is like, oh, well, you know, they're all womanizers. It's like, that's some dumb shit because I didn't think, anyway, I'm not even going to get into this. Let's get into it. Like this idea <laughs> that, you know, womanizers is just only exists in Haitian culture. I couldn't understand how folks would actually believe that. Like there's nothing that prevents anyone from like cheating and, you know, starting multiple families. I think it's very complex and, you know, we can talk about monogamy another day, another mm -hmm. episode. But it was just so strange to me. And for me, like, my, like, I've only dated Haitian men except for one who I happen to have a child with now. <laughs> um, but in, yeah, my date. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you got yourself a black American baby girl. I do. And we're going to talk about that in a second because, yeah, that that's come up in terms of like how she identifies. And, you know, I had this conversation with him and he was like, yeah, she's Haitian. And I'm like, yeah, that's it. But then in talking with someone else, they're like, well, why just Haitian? She's black. And I'm like, well, obviously she's black, but she's Haitian. And I really had to sit with like, why was I why, why just Haitian? Right. She's black American and she's Haitian. And I think I needed to sit with, you know, what I didn't know was coming up for me in thinking about how she identifies. And I think a large part of it was fear around her not being connected to her Haitian culture. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I think we hear this with our parents, right? Even when they talk, um, or at least when I talk with my mom, um, you know, she, it's important for her. And it's important for me, for Zora to grow up understanding Creole, speaking Creole, understanding the culture, because, I think people think the more that the generations are born in the States or, you know, not born in Haiti, that they're going to get further and further away from their culture. And I really don't want that to be the case for her. Um, and what I had to realize is that I'm a huge deciding factor in that. So I can actually teach her the things that I want to teach her. Um, and I, I think that we can empower that, you know, natural curiosity that she already has to continue learning about her Haitian roots, you know, learning about her father's side, learning about her Gullah roots as well. So right. I think all are important and valid. Yes, I agree. So in thinking about like how we, you know, the conversations that we've had in the past about like how we identify or even things around like what does it mean to be Haitian even you know in, in practicing the language right speaking Creole and feeling at least for me I know I I used to feel really anxious about speaking Creole in front of other <coughs> excuse me other Haitian people because I feared like judgment especially since I already experienced that with the family and like people laughing at me and stuff but things really change at a certain point and I think that going to Haiti had a huge impact on my life and I think your life as well because we've talked about this before so how do you think your visit to IET impacted your sense of Haitian identity and what was that experience like for you well let me just say that I still have a crippling fear of speaking Creole in front of any Haitian person because I have been judged and ridiculed my entire life <laughs> okay 
And now I'm just like, I'm starting to get to the point where I'm like, whatever. I'm trying and that should fucking be enough for you. And also, who are you to mm-hmm. me? Right. Um, but yes, yeah, so going to Haiti for the first time in 2017, um, I, you know, there was a lot of mental preparation that I had to do going just because I just felt like I was going to have a breakthrough there and I wanted to have a breakthrough there. Mm-hmm. Um but just seeing how s- some people would interact with me as, you know, an American visitor and some would interact with me like a Haitian returning home. Mm. So it was, I mean, it was a great experience. I did, there was some guy who was like, oh, I said, I told him I was Haitian and he's like, oh, where were you born? And I was like, well, I was born in America, but, you know, my parents are from here. I'm Haitian, like, the end, end of story. And he was like, he literally laughed in my face, Shade. He laughed in my face and said, you're American. And I walked away from him because I was going to chop him in the neck. Um, <laughs> but then the next day I was buying art. There was a bunch of vendors on the beach and I was speaking with... The different artists and they were just like nope your family your home you're Haitian and I was like thank you not that I needed that but I really did <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel you I do and it, yeah I so I went to Haiti for the first time in 2016 and I traveled with a group of white people um, and one in particular that had gone to Haiti a couple times before and was just wanting to treat me as her little Haitian token. Have you had this? Have you had that? Did you try this? Do oh you know? <sighs> Doug, stop. And we did have to have that conversation. Um, but when I got there, you know, I, I met, we met up with um, another group of white women who had been doing work, air quotes, you can't see me, but that's what I'm doing, who had been doing work in Haiti for the last like 15, 20 years. And they were really like, oh, my God, this is your first experience here. And we get to show you Haiti. And I really resented that because mm-hmm. even though this that was my first time in Haiti, it felt so familiar to me. Because, like, the same way that you describe your mom describing and really painting a picture of what it was like to grow up in Haiti is the same thing that I experienced, right? My mom telling me about, you know, stories living by the water and, you know, fishing and just being with the land. And my father telling me his stories, you know, growing up and, you know, he grew up in a different, um, you know, in a very different way because my grandfather was the chief of police. So, you know, in terms of class, he was part of the bourgeoisie. So, you know, their experiences were very different. And I think hearing from both my parents about their experiences and the experiences of my grandparents really painted a very vivid, excuse me, vivid picture of you know Haiti so when I got there it felt like familiar land um and I and I struggled a bit because these white people were doing the most and it it was just it was hard um recognizing and knowing that the work that they're doing is actually contributing to the high rates of unemployment in Haiti and we can go into that a different time but it was really conflicting but in terms of like my own personal journey I remember we were um, in a meeting at one of the local universities and you know we met with um, these folks who are obviously Haitian um, and one of them looked at me and he was just like you're Haitian and I was like yeah Um, and he looked at me from across the table and he, he, you know, he was asking if it was my first time there. And I said, yes. And he was like, it's not the last time. I was like, definitely not. And all of this whole exchange is happening in Creole. And then he looked at me and he says, welcome home. Oh, yo, yes. yo, yo. My heart, the way that my heart felt in that moment, I can't even describe it, yo. I can't. I it was been so freaking ugly snot crying all over the table. Listen, <laughs> listen, 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 listen. It was something that none of the people around the table could even understand, could even comprehend what was happening in that moment. Yeah. But for me, it was so validating to one, be welcomed like that. And two, to also just be received as another Haitian and not this sort of distinction between, well, you're American and you're not Haitian enough. So it was really comforting and it was something that I didn't know I needed, but it was an amazing experience. Right. When I went to Haiti, I just, just the drive uh, from the airport to the resort was like an hour long. 
and just so many things, so many ideas and so, so many things were being birthed within me. And I'm like, all mm-hmm. right, I got to come back and do like real work. <laughs> like mm-hmm. not like the air quotes work, but also not on submission bullshit. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sure that helps, but not on submission bullshit. Like I'm trying to go back and create jobs. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm trying to really do some shit. And I feel like there's a certain level of Haitianness I can't reach until I'm literally foot on the ground doing work and doing stuff for my people. Mm. And that's one of my biggest passions ever since that trip. You know, yes. And I love to hear that. And I love connecting with other Haitian Americans that that think similarly in terms of wanting to connect more with Haiti and some of the work that's happening. Because when I went, so I went to the DR um, in 2017, and we were um, working with fo- Haitian folks that lived and worked on the Bates, the sugar plantations, um, because they came from Haiti, you know, for for work and for a better opportunity. Long story short, they're on these sugar plantations working. And when I traveled there, I, I traveled with two groups of students. The students that I was directly advising, there was about a group of six of them. Five out of the six were Black, um, you know, very, you know, Jamaican, um, Black American, and there was one white student that traveled with us um, in that group. So we were, when we were going around the Bates, I was the translator, which made me very, very happy because I was at a point where I was like, I speak the, I can speak the language and I know I do. And it was really coming out fluidly. So that was different experience but so we were walking around the bates doing these interviews and talking with folks about their experiences um just to understand what it meant to you know in terms of my um unpacking migration specifically considering the the history of haiti and the dominican republic and one of the things that came up often in talking with these folks is how happy they were to see other black faces doing this work and they were talking about you know they always see and now how they framed americans they always see americans which for them meant white people coming into their communities and doing things that they don't necessarily agree with doing things that were really condescending um and really doing things that didn't recognize the humanity in them which Mm -hmm. was really touching for all of us to hear in terms of just understanding more um, the impact of really voluntourism and that and that culture. Um, and also the other side of the issue is that it's not a lot of black and brown faces going into black and brown communities. So it was very leveled um, and layered. So yeah, this piece of like, we need to be connected more and, you know, doing this work, whatever this work is, I think that representation matters. Um, and certainly representation with the understanding that folks who are going there need to have the understanding of certain, you know, historical backgrounds and, you know, present day contexts that impact, um, you know, lived experiences. Yeah, um, I completely agree. What are some positive ways your identity has been affirmed? Um. I think when I got to the point of healing through things that I needed to heal through in terms of like how I identify and who I can be, once I decided that that's actually for me to decide, it, it changed things significantly in so many ways. But, you know, in the context of like being Haitian American, um, and again, like I said, I still struggle around that Americanness um, in different ways now than I did in the past. I think that has been really affirming to me and knowing and believing that I'm allowed to take up space because I am um, Mm. has been really affirming. So I I find that a lot of the things that I struggled with when I was younger, I certainly don't struggle with now, but it didn't happen without a lot of intentional unlearning um, and learning, specifically around unlearning anti-Blackness and how I perpetuated it and maybe ways that I still perpetuate it and then not fully aware of but I do feel very affirmed in the spaces that I occupy um, and in the community that I hold, um, communities that I hold and communities that hold me as well. You know, and I think you can definitely identify with this. When I was younger, whenever I'd go to school, I'd always be so embarrassed because I always smelled like food. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it's, eight o'clock in the morning 
you walk into your classroom and someone's like, I smell onions and rice. And I'm just like, yo, can you, you making this situation mad hot right now? Can you relax? And I'd always be like, oh my God, let me like shove my jacket into my locker or my cubby to hide the smell. But now I'm fucking honored if I smell like some D. cola. Like I really am. Yo. It's 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 so funny to think about that now, and like that was certainly a concern I had. Like going, like it was like middle school, like early high school. People always pointing out, like, why do you smell like sausages, or why do you smell like this? It's because we cook dinner for breakfast. Like, <laughs> <laughs> my friends would always be so confused when they're like, "Oh, what are you having for breakfast? Last night's dinner." <laughs> But it's breakfast, okay? I can't eat rice and beans and chicken for breakfast. <laughs> Try it. Came over for a sleepover. What y'all, what y'all about to have right now? Some rice and chicken right now for breakfast. And they loved it. So shut up. Thanks. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Yo. The culture clashes were so hilarious. And even now, like, it's still so funny. They're like, oh, we had cereal. And not to say, like, I didn't have cereal growing up or eggs or whatever. But this, I, this very... Like, folks were really, like, committed to what breakfast had to be and what lunch had to be. Like, at lunch, when everyone's whipping out a, you know, tuna fish sandwich on white bread with Cape Cod chips, I had my diria sauce pot. Like, that, that's, just, <laughs> that's just what it is, you know? And they're like, oh, why does it smell like that? Also, can I have some? No, because you're rude and you just yucked my yum, so no. I remember one of my... I think she's Korean. One of my Korean friends, she was saying how one time for lunch, her parents sent her with kimchi and it was the worst <laughs> day of her life. <laughs> she was just like, why do you have to do this to me, guys? Kimchi, really? <laughs> and I said, girl, I feel you, okay? When they're trying to, when they send us with fish, when they send us with fish for lunch. Yo. Now the whole, the whole hallway, <laughs> the whole entire first floor of the elementary school, of the middle school, of the high school, smells like fish. Yeah. Okay. I'm like, oh God, why is this happening? You know, and that goes to show, like, sometimes I think people think like these are like isolated experiences, but they're not, and they're very much so cross cultural. I remember watching, um, I think they had an episode of this on Fresh Off the Boat. And I laughed so hard. <laughs> I laughed so hard. I was like, I feel so seen. <laughs> mm-hmm. And can I just say that, obviously, you guys know I'm a caterer. So now when I'm watching all these chefs shows and they're just like, you know, when you cook the rice, you need to get that, you know, that hard, that hardness at the bottom. I'm like, oh, so now y'all want to eat gate, right? What? us before. We need that. We need the crusty rice. I'm like, it's called gratte, not crusty rice, but I get it, and it's delicious. It's amazing, and I just can't wait for everybody to get hip to that because it's the best part of eating rice. And sometimes, I I might overcook my rice just so I can get that good gratte. Everybody else listen, might not eat the rice, but I'll just go straight to the bottom. Listen, I love that, and when you just pour some sauce over it Ooh. and let it absorb the sauce, Ooh. listen, I'm about to yo. And th- that's w- one of the main reasons I I founded Kina's Kitchen mm. is because I truly believe that obviously food is an art form and I am an artist, but there's just something about Haitian cuisine that just hits your fucking soul mm. the way you need it to every fucking time, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I need to share this gift with the world. I need to because... It can cure all things. I'm so happy that you mentioned Kina's Kitchen. And, you know, as we're talking about affirmations, so like two things. One, I'm I'm wondering if for you, if this is one of the ways that you're positively affirmed in your identity. But two, like for you starting Kina's Kitchen, I felt like I had a space to be seen in the culinary world. And I say that in the sense of you bringing together Haitian fusion right Haitian and American and bringing it together when you know a lot of our lives was spent being told like you have to choose or you're one over the other like no no you don't have to be so I love that you created Kina's Kitchen but can you talk a lot I mean a little bit or a lot (laughs) about Mm -hmm. what what that does for you in terms of 
affirmation of your own identity. Right. So Kina's kitchen is essentially the embodiment of those two identities. Mm. Um, because in my music, I'm not really, which I'm going to try to swish that around and I want to be singing, you know, in Creole more often once I overcome my issue with speaking Creole in front of people. Um, so cooking and creating Kina's Kitchen was my way to artistically show those two worlds and how it affected me growing up. And because I just remember like, yeah, I, I would make traditional dishes for, for my friends and they would love it. But also when I would cook American dishes and they're like, when I eat this American dish, it does not taste anything like this. And I'm like, yeah, because I had to put, you know, my Haitian spice up in it. Mm. And it really did help affirm my identity as Haitian American, but also there we already spoke on, there's an emphasis on Haitian. There's always been more of an emphasis on Haitian. That's awesome. That's really dope. That's really dope. Now I'm hungry. Yo, I'm just, you know what's flashing? We've come full circle. We've started off the episode talking about food and we're clearly closing out on food (laughs) food is what brings us together and that's why we are cafe ole right i mean Mm -hmm. the community is there it's here for us really well i'm glad that we had some time to talk about this i think it's important to talk about in general and i think it's special to you know have this episode aired on haitian flag day because i do think that many people can relate and i hope that for folks listening especially y'all non-black american black people you know really reflect on all of these things especially how anti-blackness shows up because it's it's important it really is critical it is you know what we didn't touch on though what about how black people be preferring light-skinned babies yo is that an episode no that's this episode (laughs) can okay let's 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 talk about it like can I'm trying to think of what I want to say because what I want to say is about to put someone on blast in the family. Mm -hmm. And I think you know who I'm talking about, but actually because it's this person, I won't do it. Um, But I will share a a conversation that I think you were in that same space, Kain, and I think you heard the same thing I did. Um, Well, you tell me if you did. So I remember, you know, when we were still at the apartment over on Mix, um, Mm -hmm. we had some family over. And, you know, someone else, one of the other cousins had a baby and um, they're, they're married to a white man. And as this person was talking about, um, you know, our cousin's baby, they were saying that, you know, they have a beautiful color. You know, they're not black. And basically what she was saying was that she's nice. This baby's nice and light skinned. She doesn't this baby doesn't have a dark color, you know, and is not how I understood it to be ugly because of this dark color. And I mm-hmm. walk into the room and with all my darkness, my chocolate, like word, mm-hmm. word, this is, we're still doing this. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that conversation? I do. I was fucking horrified. I was horrified. I, wow. Yep. I remember it. And it just made me so sad to hear that, you know, it's so sad because there are certain things like we really don't have to pass on to the next generation. Like, do we need another generation of team light skin, team dark skin? And I understand that it's more complex than that. And there are many Mm -hmm. things that contribute to to that dynamic. But damn, like as family, can we do better? Please, because it was, I mean, it was hard for me and I was medium brown. I mean, I'm definitely... We are, we've already discussed this 10,000 times that I was legitimately five shades darker when I was younger. I don't know what kind of sick joke the universe is playing on me, but I look like Casper now as an adult. But anyways, (laughs) I would just see how my darker cousins would get treated and how my lighter cousins would get treated. And God forbid, don't let somebody have no hazel eyes. Oh my God, they're worshiped. Yes, I... I remember all of that. I remember all of that. (sighs) And I feel like I was so, I resented that so much that I was like, when I thought I was going to have kids, I was like, listen, I just want some chocolate ass babies. I don't want no one to, 
I just, I don't know. I was just hurt so much just by everything I witnessed and experienced. I was like, no, y'all about to get some black, black, black ass babies out of me. Listen, I, you know, in you, listening to you talk about how hurt you were by like this rhetoric, I also think about how hurt the folks are who are having these conversations were in terms of their experiences with their complexion growing up. And I know mm-hmm. that that's very real and it manifests manifest in really problematic ways. And I think about Zora, right? She's a chocolate, chocolate baby. I, I don't want her hearing that. I don't want her growing up thinking that. And again, I know that a lot of, you know, her understanding of herself will happen at home or in her homes, um, you know, and how we raise her. And just society is always already so mean and so ugly to little black girls, little chocolate girls. And mm-hmm. I don't want her coming home or visiting family thinking and hearing this, those same things. I mean, again, I'm, I'm very much so committed to, you know, helping her unlearn some of these things that she may learn and processing some of these things that she may hear. But it's just like, damn. I, I wasn't, pre- what, what I think what I'm sitting with right now is I wasn't prepared for how I would feel or how I felt hearing that from this family member when we walked into the kitchen yeah. and I was like, yeah. do you hear what I'm hearing? Because it was all in Creole and I'm like, I know I understand it, but like, mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to, because I've actually never heard her talk about it this way in front of me. Yeah, me neither. And I, we already discussed it and I told you, had it been anyone else, I would have went off. Mm-hmm. I would have went off on another level of off. So that's why, listen, that's why Haitian people, the real Haitians, I say that quote, they be calling me American because I don't believe in that you're my elder, so I'm going to hold my tongue. If you're wrong, you're wrong. I'm going to tell you you're wrong. And not that it has to be in a hostile way, definitely not. But I'm not just going to like smile and nod because you're an elder. Like if you're saying some off the wall shit, I'm going to tell you like, hey, that's a little off the wall. And probably don't say that again because it's hurtful or xyz whatever it said but i'm all about healthy confrontations well i say that i am really i'm a non-confrontational but (laughs) (laughs) but really it was it's what needs to happen because i feel like i'm such a fierce protector of my little cousins because we didn't have anyone to protect us from things like this. So when I hear stuff like that, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And then I think about our cousin who I, I, I don't know, she might be embarrassed. So I'm not going to say her I name. I know who you're talking who about. Dealt, who dealt with issues because she was chocolate, because she is chocolate. Just the years and years of sadness and depression mm-hmm. that could have been alleviated from a single talk. You know what I mean? Like that shit hurts me. Uh, it, I, Yes, I hear you. And I remember even having conversations with this cousin, even so conversations individually and conversations with you with her, because I feel like it was like a double dose of everything she wasn't really hearing in other spaces, especially from like her mom and, you know, the environment she grew up in. And it's it it was so sad to see and also to compare her experience with another one of our cousins who's about the same age, who's light skinned and how Mm -hmm. the treatment was different and how their experiences were really different and how a lot of that comes back down to their complexion. Mm -hmm. And even just watching her grow now, it's like, I just can't wait till she like fully comes into her own. And it's interesting to watch her grow up and as she's navigating dating and stuff like that and how some Mm -hmm. of that stuff may continue to come up. But you know, everybody has a process we certainly had ours we are having ours it just looks different now and you know I I want to ask we need to have a part two I'm gonna I want to ask her to have a conversation with us because I I think (laughs) good luck with that you know but I I just think that there's so much there there's so much there and like for so for um like um Uncle Kern's side and like my mom's side so Kaina and I are cousins through her father and my mother they're um brother and sister so on that side growing up it was me and Kaina as the two you know girl cousins until for what maybe like how old were we when the next two sets of girls came at least at least 10 so really that's it it feels like much longer yeah it could have been like oh no you're right actually you're right because we're only nine years older than them 
Oh. Yeah, nine, ten years <laughs> older. Wow, it feels like much longer. I was like, I don't know how old these children are. They just, I just call them my babies still, even though they're legally, they're allowed to drink. They're, but yeah. still, I'm like, oh, my little baby. They're like, please stop. Listen, this. I changed all of their diapers and I love reminding them of that because it's true. So forever, my baby. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think that, you know, for a while it was just you and me. But then when, when they were born, it's like everybody started having mad girls. Mm-hmm. And I think that, so for, for me, when I think about sort of what was missing, um, especially because I didn't always see you, um, sometimes you were on the other side of the family, um, you know, for gatherings and stuff like that. And it was just me. Um, but I feel like there were certain things that were missing. And I wonder for them, like, what was the experience like to have all these, well, one, sisters and other, you know, girl cousins around to experience things with? Yeah. So we gotta, we gotta get her on, I suppose. We'll see. Maybe. Give her the option of doing it anonymously. <laughs> she can have a code name and everything. Yes. Well, happy Haitian flag day. Listen, I'm about to go make some sauce pot for real, though. You know what? I have some my moulin in the refrigerator that mm. I, I wish I had some snapper to go with it. That's the only thing missing. Mm. Some snapper and some banan. Well, it was good talking with you, girl. You too. Always. Always. Where can they find us on the gram? You can find us on Instagram at Cafe Ole Podcast. Um, yeah, that's where you can find the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Please follow us. Please share. We're excited again about this podcast and hope that we can connect with more people. So please share our podcast, share our page, send us a note, tell us how you're experiencing our conversations. Yes, we've had people reach out about the first two episodes and it really it really made my heart melt. So, yes, you know, send some love. always. I've had people who would like text me as they're listening to an episode and not finishing it like oh wow I'm really curious about this or I'm like listen to the rest of the episode but I'm so glad I'm so glad that you're engaged yeah well until next time peace and love peace (laughs) and love